Greetings, I'm Dave Gilmore, and this is Design Intelligence. Matthew Kahn is a leading educator in the field of environmental economics and provost professor of economics at the University of Southern California. On this edition of This is Design Intelligence, he explains the discipline of microeconomics, discusses how the climate challenge is creating a huge market for solutions, and how the design profession is poised for innovation and success in this space. Welcome to this edition of This is Design Intelligence, conversations with leadership voices in the built environment. Matthew, so glad you're here with us today, and, and we're pretty excited about our time here in Washington, D.C. Good morning. You're a free market capitalist, specializes in microeconomics. Share with us why this discipline? I mean, what were the drivers that brought you here? And they're the ones that are sustaining your extraordinary insights. I say that because we'll talk more about some of those insights in a moment. So when I was a little kid, I sent Gerald Ford a letter. So the year was 1974 and he had introduced whip inflation now. So inflation was going on in 1974. And I, it must've been a strange eight-year-old that I sent him a letter and he sent me back one of those whip inflation now buttons that you could see on the internet. So at an early age, in a strange way, I was going to be an economist. But Dave, there's micro and macroeconomics. And macroeconomics is this very difficult field, but, uh, and I don't do macroeconomics. So when we think macroeconomics focuses on the average person. And I had a teacher at the University of Chicago who said, if your head's in the oven and your feet are in the fridge, on average, you're okay. <laughs> and so, that joke, which I think is funny, is why I became a microeconomist, because we differ. And I really want to understand whether it's climate change, whether it's rising inequality, whether it's progress in architectural design, how does that affect different people in our diverse society? And I'm still working to understand those big questions. That's just fantastic. You know, I was recently challenged by an audience when I used the word relevance to define the word relevance. So being a good sophist, I turned it around and said, and how do you define relevance? To which the audience went completely blank. So I then gave them the definition of relevance. To be relevant means pertinent to the matters at hand. Think about that. What is pertinent to the matters at hand? And a microeconomist is focused on the matters at hand. I guess for our audience, is there an entry point, how shall I say, when you conduct the research that you do, what is the lens that a microeconomist looks through to approach a project? So I read the New York Times and the New York Post each day, and it sort of provides fodder for my thinking. Um, an example, many Americans buy a home and so something that I'm doing research right now on is how the impending climate change challenge affects the search and the satisfaction with buying a home. The normal person would not bring those two non-intuitives together, but you're bringing those together. It makes fantastic sense. So when searching for a home, everybody knows the cliche location, location, location. We've always sought a cheap home, but a home in a beautiful neighborhood, a beautiful home, close to work, close to friends, close to shopping, in a low crime area. But Dave, we both know there's no free lunch. And so we all face a trade-off. Even Elon Musk faces a budget constraint. I haven't mentioned climate change yet. 
Amidst all of those locational features, safe streets, good schools, proximity to things you love, now what we see on the horizon is that different properties face different exposure to high heat, to flood risk, and fire risk. So Dave, in neighborhoods in Atlanta, you and I could look at a map together and talk through for different neighborhoods in my Los Angeles, in your Atlanta, in Bozeman, Montana, as we think about the world in 2050, 2060, when you buy a house in 2022, you're making a long run investment. You'll either bequeath it to your kids or you'll sell it. Will it be a valuable asset in the future? And so I'm thinking through, and I'd love to tell you more about how hard-headed investors, even if they're not Greta Thurberg or Al Gore, they have increased incentives to think through, am I buying a climate resilient asset? And is it resilient because of God or because of good design, good urban planning and good self-protection of having a great air conditioner? And so these are the things I'm working on. So that is at the heart of our work in design intelligence. You know, it all begins with design for us. How do you design the urban space? How do you design the, the landscape? And how do you create homes that will that will be resilient into the future regardless. But to tell you the truth, our industry has been radically irresponsible. We put things up quickly, we move along to the next project. It has only been in these last couple of decades that the idea of resilience is starting to come to the fore. Uh, but like most things, we're behind not being proactive and out in front of it. Your work in this study, I think you partnered with Redfin, is that right? Yes, I'll tell you a bit more in a moment. Yeah, yes. and I think that the economic data coming out of that real estate group is probably fueling a lot of your thinking around this. And I'm wanting to know how can the design community provide you with a different layer of data that might also enhance the outcome of this from a so what? You know, the question is, is, okay, now I know that. So what? What do I do with that information? And yeah, I think it is in, it's critical for the design community to properly respond to that, to start accelerating resilience for home values and, and neighborhoods, et cetera, et cetera. I agree. So in our study that we'll be releasing soon, Redfin back in 2020, Redfin is a competitor of Zillow. And of course, Redfin on the internet provides all this information about housing as you search in every neighborhood you're looking for, telling you all these things. Does it have a pool? What's its square footage? How many bedrooms? In a partnership with a nonprofit called First Street Foundation, with whom I have a research relationship, First Street Foundation provided data, home-specific data, for those in the treatment group on what were the flood scores of properties you're looking at. So if Dave searches for some home in Atlanta that is beautiful, uh, you would be randomly assigned to either be in the treatment group or control group. And if you're in the treatment group, you're told the flood score for the property you're looking at, while those in the control group don't receive this trusted climate information. Dave, what we find is statistically significant evidence that those who receive the flood score information and learn that the home is at flood risk substitute to safer homes. And now to say something that greatly interests everyone, even in counties which voted pro-Trump in 2020, even in Republican areas, this information from this trusted source changes people's search behavior as they search for homes on higher ground. And so to turn to you and to ask a question about the design community, let's not write off homes that turn out to be in high flood risk areas. 
we are not passive victims. So Dave, if a home, if a beautiful home is in an area at elevated flood risk in future years, how can design protect that home? Can they be retrofitted? Is that part of the community's agenda? And I believe it must be part of the agenda. Though most of the architecture folks that we deal with are dealing with commercial residences as opposed to individual family, single family homes. The question of refresh, refurbish, reposition homes is rising because why do we keep tearing things down to build more new things when you could refresh an existing building or move it toward a more resilient footprint? These are the questions that are, that are rising, not just for homes, but for commercial buildings all over the United States. It is a question, which means it's still being discussed, which means at least going by the tradition of this industry will be years before action is taken, which I'm not sure that we need to take so much time to make those kind of decisions. And in the community, if, if a bunch of commercial building owners are close to each other, are there discussions of how to use urban planning, a little park for wetlands, of, of ways to use natural capital to protect the structures? In a major way. I, I believe the, the most responsible thinkers and actors in this space are coming from the planners and the landscape architects who are taking a lead on this because it's not the building, it's the context of the building that needs to be best understood towards resilience. And another project that I'm doing that is related here is the Army Corps of Engineers. There's an interesting fight in nerdy economics that, of course, the intent of the Army Corps of Engineers is to protect us through levees, seawalls. But a moral hazard argument, if people believe that the Army Corps of Engineers is great at protecting us in a Miami, do more people move there and does more money get invested, placing more assets at risk? And so a tough libertarian field in adaptation economics is when the Army Corps of Engineers invests in a place, does it actually make the place more risky because more assets are built there and now are at risk? And if the engineering projects fail, like with Hurricane Katrina, are you placed at mega risk versus the what if, if we hadn't invested in these public projects using federal tax dollars, would more capital investment have avoided the area? You'll remember in May of this last year of 2022 that HSBC's Stuart Kirk got up and made a presentation in London. And of course, he was crucified afterwards because of his very strong and almost dismissive statements about the state of climate change and the way that people were responding to all of that. One of the things, though, that he brought out was something that I haven't heard anyone give a viable response to. It's almost like he said it and we decided to set it off to the side because we wanted to attack his other agenda. And that was he had a single chart that talked about that the more the warnings in the press about climate catastrophe are published, the more and more hyperbole around this that occurs, the strange outcome is that asset prices increase and continue to increase. What he said in his kind of maybe uh, off-putting way was that, well, number one, climate risk is negligible, was what his first statement was, and therefore it really has no impact on rising asset prices, or that climate risk is already priced in to this valuation, or that all investors are wrong, right? And so he kind of simplified it in, in a straightforward way. How should we respond to this? 
This is a great question. And it, it's, it's almost uh, Freakonomics. It's almost a Steve Levitt Freakonomics correlation. Yeah. And so I have nothing too smart to say on that one. But I, I want to speak to this issue of whether climate risk is negligible. And my answer is no. I, I'm a father. I, I care about the future. I, I hope I have a few more decades with us. I'm deeply concerned about our future. But because I'm deeply concerned about our future, and I believe that billions of people on the planet are as well taking the climate change challenge seriously, I actually believe, Dave, that this creates a huge market, a huge demand for solutions. So I crack the joke with my undergraduates when I teach them about innovation, that if I, as a bald man, were the world's only bald man, we don't get Rogaine. But when enough people have a problem and recognize they have a problem and are willing to pay to not have this problem, this creates huge economic returns for entrepreneurs, the next Musk, the next Bezos, to try to tinker around and come up with solutions. So when I think about our future for different points on the map, fire risk, heat, flood risk, this creates a huge market for innovators, both in the public and private space to innovate. And so that's why I've been so excited to get to know you, to think about the design community of how for commercial assets, residential assets, how are we going to build going forward assets where people are happy and can be productive and work because this is crucial for our productivity and long run economic growth. So to tie this together, because we face increased risk, and because even the Wall Street Journal and Financial Times are now talking about this, you don't have to be Greta Thunberg or Al Gore for this to penetrate the innards of your brain. This known unknowns about the risks we face creates, like Rogaine, a demand for the climate Rogaine, and there will be failures and success as entities such as yours experiment. But from a law of large numbers, someone's going to succeed. So, so we now have Facebook because of Zuckerberg's tinkering. Why won't we have equal success in the resilience space? You're absolutely right. I, I loved the book that you wrote, and I was thankful to receive it and go through it. And I and when, You're my when, only reader. You've written several books, but the one that I'm particularly interested in is Adapting to Climate Change. And uh, the subtitle there is Markets and the Management of the Uncertain Future. And it is an extraordinary view into how we think about, in this case, climate change, if not catastrophe. And instead of focusing on mitigation, we are focusing on adaptation. That is not to dismiss mitigation, nor to take our foot off the pedal of all of our efforts there, but that we have to own the reality that not all things can be resolved by our will. And therefore, there's the opportunity here to adapt and make life better in spite of these catastrophic predictions that are being made. Talk to us more about the opportunity that arises when we think of adaptation toward this. So Dave, my starting point in that book is that the rest of the world is getting closer to achieving their own American dream. I'm a fan of the Inflation Reduction Act. I'm excited about the rise of the green grid and the electrification of transportation. But when I do my arithmetic of 8 billion people on the planet growing richer and still living a carbon intensive lifestyle, when you multiply those numbers, unfortunately, greenhouse gas emissions are going to rise. Facing this challenge, this creates opportunities in the following spaces. We both know that we're going to need a real estate stock to help us to be more resilient. So Dave, uh, an example. Think of life in Phoenix in the year 2060. 
if there is drought, if there is extreme heat, how would a family, if your future grandchildren and great-grandchildren are living there, let's talk through a day in their life. So Dave, let me turn this back to you since you are a practical problem solver. If it's over 100 degrees, 80 days a year in Phoenix in the year 2060, and if there's very little water, the Colorado River, your vision for how you foresee urban design, that the doom and gloomers say that the millions of homes there will collapse in value. There's many stakeholders who would lose a fortune if that happens, and they become an interest groups thinking and demanding adaptation solutions. So where's the money to be made in architecture and design to keep Phoenix livable in 2060? Well, that's a fantastic question. And, and obviously, it begins for me in a new reimagining urban design, right? It requires us to rethink how we think about infrastructure and about the collection of water and the retention of water in the very few days we get water in that space, in that, that futuristic space of 2060 in Phoenix. It makes us think differently about how we design our areas of shade, our areas of exposure, because with that level of heat, it is... Uh, I, I can't imagine the debilitation on the human body, much less everything else at that point. So there's a radical reimagining of the urban space of landscape and what consumes water and what retains water. There's also a new thinking about how we create energy in that space. With that much sunshine, I'm guessing there's lots of opportunities to harvest that sunshine for our futures. Uh, I could go on and on with that, I but at it. the end of the day, there is a huge economy that can be generated from this new reversed adaptation. You laid out the theme for us that there are alternatives to only mitigation, that there is opportunity for us to understand adaptation and being a free market microeconomist, you're always looking for the optimism and opportunity into the future. It would seem to me that the second book uh, in Trail Behind Adaptation might be actioning adaptation. And where would we take that? As a microeconomist, let's partition America into a couple of geographies. Maybe we should start in Atlanta. But for an Atlanta, a Miami, Bozeman, Santa Barbara, California. Dave, let me ask you, in an Atlanta, as we think about a vibrant Atlanta in the year 2060, and I realize the governor and the mayor won't be the same person then, what challenges do you foresee? So we did Phoenix already. As you think about Atlanta, what would be our partnership at this bridge of public-private opportunities to build a, to, for Atlanta to be more climate resilient in 2060, of heat, fire risk, pollution, and even flood risk? What specifics would we be delving into in interviews and in getting ready to have a strong Atlanta that's climate resilient in 2060? Oh, that's a, it's a great question because it is a call to collaboration and it begins with collaborative thinking and contribution. It seems like we could attract folks from the governor's office, from the mayor's office of Atlanta, but also tie up with some other organizations like the Urban Land Institute. It's a very robust chapter that operates out of Atlanta. We also have Georgia Tech, which is 
an amazing institution about thinking and has unbelievable amount of data. But then many of the largest and best architectural firms in the country are represented in Atlanta, along with the major engineers, not only building engineers, but infrastructural engineers. Imagine bringing all those people around a large table and dreaming into 2060. If if money was no object, and it always is an object, but if money was no object and politics were not an object, and we as a collection could decide on the future of 2060, what would we do to ensure a thousand year resilience of Atlanta? What would we say? And it's that kind of of wide open brainstorming that needs to be done, but it, it must be a collection of people from multiple uh, disciplines and multiple perspectives that fully inform to allow us to dream more rationally, not just crazy dreaming. It, it seems like that's a, a great way to start and, and then to prioritize what we believe to be the number one, number two, number three actions that would be taken towards that. Because honestly, here we are in 2022, you're going to blink and it's going to be 2060 before you know it. Dave, I agree. If I had a tattoo, it would say we're not passive victims. We face a major challenge here, but um, a little bit of um, American boosterism. We have a long history of, of rising to challenges. And this is a challenge that we need to depoliticize this. As John McCain argued, it's a national security threat. In my book, Adapting to Climate Change, I make a point that I believe that many Republicans um, poo-poo Al Gore. They wouldn't use that word in public, but at home, they're privately Googling when they're alone challenges they face of what's the heat coming forward? How do they reduce flood risk for their property? And so I'm very interested in our private selves versus our public selves. And as if we can reposition the climate change challenge as a risk, so we face safety risks, crime risk, we face national security risks. If we can reposition this risk as another risk, then we are better suited to use private markets to address this challenge. And I would love to partner with you in the settings you said that specific is terrific. And a weakness in my work as a big thinker is the details really matter. And I'd love in the next phase of my career to be much more practical in a few important sites such as Atlanta. Well, that's fantastic. And we'd love to do that all over the country. Matthew Kahn, what a delight to have you here with us. By the way, we're recording this session in Washington, D.C. before we convene the Design Futures Council Leadership Summit on the future of environmental responsibility, to which you are one of our keynote speakers. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Dave. Thank you for joining us for this edition of This is Design Intelligence. The producer is Laura Spells. The sound engineer is Jared Knabel. This has been a DI Media Group production.